Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Doctors Adam Sheely and Ter Masco met in medical school. They became friends who supported one another through the rigors of navigating medical school successfully. Today, they are here to talk about their adventures in doctoring. Dr. Teramesco was a guest on a previous podcast episode discussing the medical management of osteoporosis. Have a listen if you have not had the chance. Dr. Adam Sheely, thank you for joining us on the show today. Could you please tell us about your specialty, where you practice, and how long you have been practicing? All right. Yes, Dr. Nadine Kelly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I am a pathologist. I, um, more specifically, I'm an anatomically trained, clinically uh, board-certified pathologist. I work at the Portland VA system, healthcare system in Portland, Oregon. The one thing that drew me to pathology is that the body never lies. Because in my training, that was one of the issues would vex me. So, you know, you're a young medical student going around doing your, your rounds, you're giving your patients and you do your interviews, your, your history and physicals, and then you meet with your, re- your resident or your fellow or your attending and you go rounding. And so you present your patient and when you go see the patient, yeah. it's totally different. And mm-hmm. now you're looking like an idiot because yeah. <laughs> they decided not to be forthright. Also, you know, when you interview patients, yeah. they'll say, um, no, I haven't been eating this and I've been following the perfect diet. No, I don't understand why my blood sugars are just high and un- not under control. And then you do what's called a hemoglobin A1C that looks at the trend of your blood glucose for the past three months. And it's out of is off the charts. What you see on the tissue, what you see on the slides and what they're trying to tell you, they tell a story. And it's a story that you can kind of, you can trust. And I like that. And that's a great segue into Dr. Teramasco. Thank you for coming back to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm I'm a board certified internist, but I work as a hospitalist, which means my practice is taking care of medical patients admitted to the hospital. Formerly, maybe probably about 20 years ago now, your primary care doctor would be the medical provider that you would have in the hospital should you get admitted. But now with how busy a lot of outpatient medical practices are, there was the advent of a hospitalist, an internist or a medical doctor that was primarily based just in the hospital so that your primary doctor, your personal doctor, wouldn't have to leave the office during the day to round on that that individual. What I do is really take care of everything if you are older than uh, 18 and you're not pregnant. I work at both a large multidisciplinary tertiary care center, and I also work at, you know, two rural hospitals. I kind of have the advantage of experiencing um, healthcare from different perspectives and dealing with very different, you know, patient populations, an inner city population, and also rural um, and suburban populations. Actually, since 2014 now. Why did you become a doctor in the first place? 
I've always wanted to become a doctor. The earliest I can remember was when I was 12. I saw a uh, heart surgery on television. There was an African-American female who was the host who was also a doctor. And I was just so impressed with her. I was impressed with everything. I was just I was just super impressed with the whole human body. I And during that time, I learned about Dr. Uh, Daniel Hale Williams, who was the um, first black heart surgeon to... Mm-hmm. Um, to perform a successful heart surgery. When I was younger, my mom said that, um, I think she said I was like two or three, I broke away from her. We were in the mall and there was a um, little old lady who had really bad rheumatoid arthritis where she had like large nodules on her hand. And she said, I just worked away from my mom, ran to this lady and just grabbed her hand and was like, it's going to be okay. It'll Mm. be okay. I wanted to be a part of them getting better or, you know, easing their pain for whatever moment of time I could. Dan? I wish I could say, oh, I always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. And it's not the case. And actually, I was hoping to pursue a PhD and do developmental research. To make money, I worked at a nursing home. I worked a lot. I I worked pretty much double shifts to help pay for college. When you're working in a nursing home, you get to know these the, the patients exceptionally well. You're dealing with them five days a week at least. There was a patient that was normally extremely sharp, very lucid, and 99 years old. You know, she could tell you her entire life story, and she was sharp. She, she could reminisce. I mean, what a wealth of knowledge. Love talking to her if I had downtime. There was one particular day where she was, she was finishing up with dinner, and she was unusually confused, and her urine just smelled like pure ammonia. And it doesn't take that long, even if you're not a physician or even, you know, trained extensively, where you realize that when some old person is acting confused and their urine smells bad, they probably have a urinary tract infection. Mm-hmm. So her, her personal physician happened to be rounding that day in, in the nursing home. And I went up to him and was excited because I was kind of eager to relay this information to him. Because at this point, I started realizing I didn't really like research. I didn't like bench work. And I really liked taking care of patients. I didn't know how I wanted to take care of them, but I knew that I liked interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe he could give me some inspiration or some words of encouragement. Who knows? I go up to him and I let him know I think this woman has a urinary tract infection. I've already collected a urine sample. Would he want to send it and then start her in antibiotics? (laughs) And his response to me was, well, where did you go to medical school? Mm. Now, <laughs> immediately I knew where that was going to go. He was very dismissive and basically said, you know, when you go to medical school, you can tell me how to manage my patients. She's fine. I've seen her. And at that moment, I thought to myself, well, he's a doctor. He knows something that I don't. Well, the next day she was, now she wasn't even getting out of bed. She was having high fevers. And the day after that, she was even worse. And ultimately, we had to transfer her to the hospital where she ultimately died of a urinary tract infection because she became septic. That's not where I thought this story was going. (laughs) No. No. That was was the night I applied to med school. And then I didn't get in. And then I realized at that moment how badly I wanted it. 
Um, maybe it's because I was being told I couldn't become a doctor, but mm. it was because I wanted to be an advocate for patients. I wanted to be able to take yes. care of them. I wanted to be the physician that listens to the nurses that are taking care of their patients. Latanza, what do you love about practicing medicine? I remember when my father was ill, he um, passed away from complications with uh, end-stage renal failure. And I saw how my mom advocated for him mm-hmm. and for his health. My mom um, is a retired phlebotomist. She, you know, she knew what was what was supposed to be done from the, you know, like laboratory perspective and things of that sort. And I just imagine that everybody doesn't have that. I come from a long line of veterans, my father, grandfathers, uncles, everyone. And I feel like this is one way that, you know, I can give back Mm -hmm. as well to make sure that they get the proper care that, you know, they deserve. You know, and I like what I like about my job is that I deal a lot with more of the clinicians especially in the day of this day and age of molecular where everything seemingly can be uh, just put in a machine and you get an answer spit out. So these are very attractive, especially to the younger generation of doctors coming out and where Dan and I practice. And I appreciate this. Yes, we went to school on the island, However, it forced us to really learn medicine, mm-hmm. really learn it. So the native tribe was called the Kalanago tribe. And these were the indigenous people on the island. Mm-hmm. And the point of the mission project was to, we would go up there once a week on Saturdays to give them care. To uh, We would do histories and physicals, um, do some procedures. I remember my last um, time there, the um, doctor removed the lipoma from a man's shoulder with a, a, a scalpel and that was it you know here we would do all these blood tests we would do all this imaging we would do this and you know rightfully so there's a purpose for that however there there wasn't a luxury over there if you needed uh any type of imaging you had to go to martinique so if if i could interject a little bit it sounds to me like what you're saying is what you really love about practicing pathology and the way you were trained with little resources, you enjoy being analytical, really thinking and uh, educating both the yeah. patient and the doctor and avoiding waste. Yes, yes. Dan? There's two really main things that I love about the practice of medicine. And I would say one is the personal, I love the, the challenge. As long as patients breathe, they lie. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's intentionally, sometimes it's unintentionally. Do you think it might be just fear and denial sometimes? Oh, it's both. Sometimes patients will intentionally omit information because I think they're already seeing where things are going and they don't mm-hmm. want to, they're, they're afraid or mm-hmm. they don't want to be judged or they don't want to admit some of the things that they've done. And so I love that challenge because as a physician and, and what I, when I, I have residents that work with me, don't look at the chart, don't look at the labs, don't look at the imaging studies yet. Look at the patient, get a story because 90% of the time you can get the diagnosis from just talking to the patient mm. and, and doing a good physical. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, there was a patient that I had taken care of. <clears throat> and it was when I was working at the rural hospital, very well-dressed, well-spoken, clearly not from this little rural area. And so it already kind of heightened my suspicions. Why is he coming here? Why would he come all the way to this little hospital when he could go anywhere? And I'm talking to him and he's there for diarrhea and it's been persistent. No one can figure out what's causing it. And then I talked to him a little bit more, you know, getting it. When did it start? When exactly did it start? What did you do? Where did you go? And he was that bored question of the businessman that goes out, you know, he mm. traveled. He went to a bathhouse. He was not out as a homosexual. And one thing led to another. I very quickly figured out what was causing his, his diarrhea. And it was Giardia. Mm. And it was from the history. And as soon as he told me these little tidbits, I was like, oh, I know what it is. <laughs> and I can fix it. And the reason it hadn't been diagnosed earlier is because it was on no one's radar. And it's because no one asked him those very to-the-point questions. But mm-hmm. the other part of medicine, I think really uh, a lot of what Latanza had talked about was I love advocating for patients. I've been in the situation where I'm with a loved one who's listening to the physician going over what's wrong with them. And you kind of have that moment where when it's your loved one, or even when it's you, you shut off your medical brain. I don't know how it happens. It does. (laughs) I'm almost listening to that physician as if I had no medical background whatsoever. And I'm then looking at my loved one and I'm like, they have no clue what they're explaining. They they have Mm -hmm. no idea what they're talking about. It's when you really have that firsthand experience as the patient or the family member as the patient, you realize that we speak a different language and and not intentionally. (laughs) We're, we're like primed and we were forced into learning the second language that no one else speaks other than other doctors. So, I love when I can explain to a patient what's wrong with them and they finally get it for the first time and they finally, and Oh, that's why they need to take my gallbladder out or, Oh, that's why you think I need to have a stent. Uh, And, you know, I've had patients refuse vital tests or procedures because they really didn't understand what was wrong with them. The ability to connect with another human being in a time that they are so vulnerable and scared and frustrated. There's not many other occupations I can think of where you have that opportunity. And that's probably the most fulfilling aspect of my my profession. That's why I deal with all the other bullshit. (laughs) So what do you find challenging and frustrating about the practice of medicine? There's this Illusion when you go to become a physician, and since, you know, I'm sure you both have experienced it too, this illusion that you're going to be this highly respected, integral part of a healthcare system, but then you get into it and you realize that's not the case at all. And I think with the way healthcare unfortunately has gone in the direction, although there's a lot of good things about the way healthcare has advanced over the years, the encouragement for physicians to have independent thought, to use logic, to direct patient care and management, I think has really fallen by the wayside. There are times, even though you've sacrificed and, and done all this work, 
both personally, academically, you almost feel like a cog in a wheel. And that was something I was not prepared for. I really wasn't. I had this illusion that doctors were something important. Not that that's why I became a doctor, but I thought that I would be more highly regarded and respected as a, as, you know, for what I did and, and doing. Who is, and who is shortchanging you from that regard? The bean counters um, at the top. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, to make it, it, a long story I, short, it's the money people. Yeah. And those are the managed care, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's, it's, it's sickening. <laughs> it, it gets to the fine, you know, the finances, they are the ones that dictate basically what you can and can't do with this patient can mm-hmm. and can't have. And even um, part of it is the insurance companies as well, what they will and won't cover no matter, you know, if it is a legitimate condition or, you know, they won't cover it. They won't cover it. Press gaming is a, a huge, huge <laughs> part of it. Press Ganey is basically essentially what started, spearheaded the whole physician satisfaction um, evaluations of doctors. And in theory, it makes sense. It would be nice if everyone was satisfied with their doctor. But, and I think it's important to have a good report with patients. I'm not advocating you treat patients like numbers. And there are certainly doctors that do. But what I tell a lot of my patients is I would much rather have you see a physician who's an asshole, but that is highly competent, knows what they're doing, and is going to give you the treatment I know you need versus the really friendly doctor who smiles and jokes and is nice and has good physician satisfaction scores, but is not actually competent and, in fact, may actually harm you. Well, I, I mean, I would just fine we, tune that a wee bit because you mm. don't want the asshole who thinks that they're too high and mighty to make a mistake and not know when to get help or when mm. they reach their limitation. Mm-hmm. I've seen that aspect too. So, well, and I wouldn't consider that a good doctor. There are certain people that may have, feel cold or not be personable, but know what they're doing and are going to advocate. Oh, for absolutely, and know when to yeah, say no, yeah. How do the satisfaction scores come into play? Uh, How does a patient know about that? How does that work exactly? Well, what happens is every hospital gets a press gaining score, and that's tied in with Medicare um, and Medicaid reimbursements. If you go to a hospital, when you leave, you get a packet, and it's basically of satisfaction. It's a questionnaire. You rate anything from the person who cleaned your room and gave you food, the nurses, how clean the hospital was, everything and every, you know, everything and anything, including physicians. And then that physician gets that score and the hospital gets that score. And hospitals with lower scores and physicians with lower scores, it may impact bonuses, reimbursement. And so it behooves hospitals to really get up those scores. And they do it in any way possible. Everyone wants to be in a clean facility. Everyone wants nurses that answer call lights. You know, obviously certain hospitals that are large institutions with lots of money, literally the one hospital I work at, they do towel origami for patients. Like if you were in a hotel, I mean, you you get literally the towels are folded uh, and they trained all of the house kids and staff to do towel origami. That's very strange, Um, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> and, it is. and the reason for the towel or 
the, the, re- the reason oh, okay. how origami is because our our housekeeper scores were low, and the hospital then spends money on that, and it's it's like, is that helping healthcare? Is that making well? That, how well and how that's, that was my point, right? I mean, it's not a cruise ship, so I just wonder. Yeah, how <laughs> that's yeah. A, a, a an intelligent use of funds um, and resources, but yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> If you look at most healthcare systems, the United States is, we are run primarily by non-physician individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as LaTanza kind of put it, bean counters, you know, mm-hmm. lawyers, uh, administrators. LaTanza, your thoughts about what you find challenging about practicing? Well, I work in a different environment. Um, so I'm working with the federal government. We look at the, so in the VA system, they look at quality and some of the issues that have been faced in the VA system is the amount of wait times and the access to care that are, is provided for the um, veterans and the continuity of care. And it's a lot of red tape to just get simple things. And you have to be creative and you have to be crafty and determined. And you have to know the players of the game and, you know, who's willing to listen and get your point across. And it may take time to get things, and you have to have patience like yeah. no other. Dan, if you could turn back the hands of yeah. time, would you do it again? I would with more pause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy I didn't know then what I know now because <laughs> yes. I think I would have I would have been so much more discouraged. I, I mm. think actually going into it being ignorant was really an advantage. Latanza? <laughs> I sometimes waffle. I think that to myself quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> would I do it again? At this point, yes. Because, I mean, because whether you, you know, like it or not or uh, honor it or not, you as a physician, you do carry some type of influence and the words you say are viewed differently than if you case in point when you told your story about, you know, you with your, your patient um, who had the UTI, mm-hmm. you weren't a doctor. And so that other doctor didn't value what you said. Mm-hmm. Kind of like almost mm-hmm. like a little superpower. You know, are you going to use it for good or are you going to use it for evil? You know, so and then no- you come yeah. with a wealth of knowledge that you can help others. Looking into the future, because you're both young. How do you stay healthy so that you can be in this for the long haul and so that you can not only best serve your patients, but also serve yourself well? Um, So for me, you know, not only am I a physician, but I'm also a patient. So I have PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, which I was diagnosed in 2003. And recently diagnosed with lipedema is you have to have a lot of self-care. And um, unfortunately, leading to this path, you know, at first I didn't because you're so focused on, you know, uh, study, study, study. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. life doesn't stop. And so you have other life things. And what happens eventually is that you neglect yourself. You neglect yourself. You neglect your health for your career, Mm -hmm. for your family, for others. And it comes to a breaking point. 
my breaking point for me was in um, fellowship. Fellowship was uh, an awesome experience, but very challenging. And I really, I think that was the most I have ever, ever neglected my health. And my um, symptoms flared up that I didn't even know what was going on with me, but I ignored everything. And it's either act now or suffer later. And I just decided to choose myself. Mm-hmm. And I can still manage to do my job and um, do what I need to do, but also take care of myself. I've uh, started swimming to help with the lipedema and um, and I've watched my diet. And, you know, just, you know, life is too short. And once I started saying no and choosing myself first, things got better. So, so what is at this point, then what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? I think it's um, healthy to me equates with, you know, full health with wellness and that's having your mental, spiritual wellness, physical wellness and emotional wellness all in alignment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the two part question for Dan then now. The process of becoming a doctor, it almost requires you to neglect yourself, at least for a little while. Mm-hmm. It's not a long while. Mm-hmm. And you, you get so caught up in, I got to get this done, got to move on. And I don't think this is necessarily just unique to becoming a physician, but you really, it's very quite easy to forget about yourself because you have all these other things you're thinking about and juggling at the same time. I think one thing that helps a lot, I deal with death and dying on a regular basis unfortunately. And you have to find some way to deal with that, to grapple with it, to be able to have a friend like Latanza that you can be completely just unfiltered, completely honest, brutal. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about any pretense or offend nothing. You just can totally rant, vent, joke, but then also quickly switch over to the doctor mode and say, Hey, can I ask you about this? Or what do you think about, you know, and just kind of completely separate out that helps. (laughs) That's a huge part. I think everybody should have a friend like that to be able to have someone that understands entirely what you're going through and is is there with you. That's honestly what helped me get through med school and, and beyond. But I also think to be able to, realize that you have to have other things outside of medicine that you enjoy. Being a physician is not a job that you leave the office and shut off and you don't Mm -hmm. think about it until the next Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. You go home and often do your own research, read more, Mm -hmm. consult other colleagues. I've learned as time has gone on, I need to find other interests outside of medicine. I've recently started learning how to garden and plant stuff and prune stuff. Like I can fail. I, I mean, I, I, I love watching, oh, that didn't come back. That didn't grow. I overpruned that. It's something that <laughs> it, I can actually go outside and completely detach myself from anything medicine related. You have to be a little bit selfish. There are times that I put my phone away, kind of shut out the noise, if you will. Is there anything else you think that we needed to talk about that we missed? Um, I think so. Okay, you asked about um, will we do it again? Will we find challenging? But I think, you know, like now, 
would you suggest or recommend someone to do it? <laughs> no, I would not. One, I would ask the person, um, why do they want to be a doctor? Just like why? And it has to be more than I want to help people and all that. Because everyone hears that. Like, seriously, why? Because when you get to the point, this task and path that Dan and I chose is not for the faint hearted. Because there's other things you can do that you can help people. And, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I would suggest that if you... Um, are you know wanting to do something that's in the healthcare field that you want to help someone you want to become a physician of that sort i would say suggest entertaining physician assistants physician assistant school mm-hmm. because of just the nature of the student loan debt and that's mm-hmm. just the reality because medical school is like super duper expensive i have a friend who's um, a pa neurology he gets paid very well his uh, student loan debt he, he's paid off and he still gets to fulfill that desire that he wanted when he was in school. I still would encourage people to do it at this point, but to really understand what it means. I, I talk to a lot of pre-meds and I remind them, you know, the salary may look big, oh, um, yeah. but, salary's not the same. But, <laughs> but when you factor in the, the time it takes to even get to that point, and then when you also take into the consideration if you worked in another profession, started working sooner, yep. if you invested, compound interest, et cetera. The thing I would advise people is don't do it for the financial aspect and also realize the financial obligation required to become a physician. I think definitely, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to live below your means, you know, and becoming a physician is all about delayed gratification. The stability will come, but it, it, it's still a work in progress even after you're done. I can go anywhere and have a great job um, yeah. doing the thing that I love. And mm. not many people can say that. Well, folks, I cannot express my gratitude adequately. I know you're both <laughs> very busy people. <laughs> I really appreciate your generosity with your time. And it's clear you are both so needed in the field and and gifts to your patients. Thank you so much for being here. And now it's time for practical tips. This is what I would tell a young person or a person who's changing careers about choosing a career path. Choose your vocation with intent. Do real research. Talk to people who will be completely honest with you and tell you about the real ins and outs of their daily work. And find a friend and a confidant who can support you and understand what you're going through. Thanks for being here. See you next time.